the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's a delight to have Jennifer Hernandez with us today. Jennifer Hernandez has practiced land use and environmental law for more than 30 years and leads Holland and Knight's West Coast Land Use and Environmental Group. She divides her time between the firm's San Francisco and Los Angeles offices. Jennifer Hernandez has a notable record of service as a lawyer and an engaged citizen. She's the only California lawyer ranked by her clients and peers in Chambers USA in the top tier of both land use zoning and environmental lawyers. In addition, she's recognized as the top environmental litigator of the year in San Francisco Bay Area by Best Lawyers and received a California Lawyer of the Year Award from the State Bar of California. She's done work with significant landowner clients and major environmental organizations, and this recitation is far from comprehensive. We'll include a link to her complete bio in the show notes. Jennifer Hernandez, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a total honor to be with you. Jennifer Hernandez, you recently wrote a thoughtful and provocative article for the Breakthrough Institute. It's entitled Green Jim Crow how California's climate policies undermine civil rights and racial equity. Would you please share some background on the title and purpose of the piece, including the meaning of the historical term Jim Crow? Sure. So uh, on Jim Crow first, um, after the Civil War, uh, when slavery was uh, illegal, um, a whole bunch of non-slavery uh, laws and regulations and practices um, proliferated that continued the shameful history uh, of slavery under different uh, names and under different um, supposed rationales. Um, So the separate but equal school system, um, many of the you can't be in the uh, uh, public pool if you're black or brown. Um, Those all came up after slavery, of course, was abolished, but they were all part of a suite of laws, regs, practices, regulations and practices that were designed to continue racial discrimination in ways that really created multi-generational harms that continue to this day. And of course, the one I focus on in the piece, uh, in part, is the harm caused by uh, depriving uh, uh, black and brown primarily, but also Asians and even Jews of uh, access to home loans or home ownership um, through- Can we pause there? Racial covenants. I'm sorry, sure. I mean, the, can we pause there one moment to be sure we're all on the same page? So you're talking about laws, a lot of folks refer to Jim Crow laws. They think of the things we all know from the South, but really it goes far beyond the South, doesn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, you know, my hometown at the, these days, Berkeley, California, um, created single family zoning in the early part of the last century, well after the Civil War in Berkeley, California, uh, in order to make sure that um, uh, black and brown people, as well as Asians, uh, didn't live in the uh, nice homes on the Berkeley hillside where white San Franciscans fled after the uh, mass earthquake uh, at the beginning of the last century. So Jim Crow is really a term for using the administrative state to continue to practice and promote racially discriminatory um, uh, activities uh, uh, that have the actual effect of maintaining, uh, you know, an economic level of, of despair. Uh, and certainly uh, lack of opportunity um, for uh, uh, communities of color. And so in this important article, you are making the connection between Jim Crow and climate policies that are often advanced by people who wouldn't recognize themselves at all in the way you're classifying them. How do you oh, help us all understand that a little bit? Sure. So um, we have had in California um, a very, very strong tradition of environmental um, leadership. Uh, and, uh, and that leadership um, has always had uh, a dark side that is rarely written about uh, of exclusion. And, uh, and the exclusion is, is often um, uh, really kind of hidden in debates about whether there should be new housing or whether we should close a factory or not. Um, but, but really, there's an element of the environmental movement, um, uh, which I've been actually part of now for many, many years, um, that is simply quite hostile uh, to um, what I think most people would recognize uh, as opportunities uh, for economic as well as um, uh, social and political advancement in communities of color. And over the last summer, for example, summer before last, um, in the Black Lives Matter um, uh, moment, and it looks like it was a moment as opposed to a movement, uh, at least as far as the California environmental community was concerned, there were all kinds of emails that went out from leaders of environmental organizations in California acknowledging uh, the racist roots of many of their environmental icons, um, uh, but also ongoing blindness, if not willful disregard for racial equity and civil rights um, as part of their environmental advocacy activities. Um, that was a moment in time and it passed. Uh, and now we had a full-throated roar of the environmental community against even studying home ownership, against um, holding any kind of uh, uh, transparency up to the fact that we subsidize um, solar rooftops um, by charging high, higher electricity costs to people without solar rooftops, um, effectively a, um, a revenue shift from the wealthy to the, um, to the poor, um, and do all kinds of other things in, under the name now of climate policy, uh, which have uh, quite devastating and ongoing effects in California uh, as witnessed by uh, the fact that California has the nation's highest poverty rate, highest homelessness rate, highest electricity and gas costs. It's an incredible um, uh, burden uh, uh, to live in California 
with our cost of living um, and uh, and housing and other um, constraints. And of course, uh, all of those costs fall most heavily and create the highest burden on uh, people in the middle and lower income, uh, let alone the poor. Uh, and uh, and those people are now in California, a very racially diverse state, majority minority or communities of color. So. Um, Pretty, uh, pretty shocking, actually. Well, let's do this. So, because you you lay out so many important issues so well, why don't we go in sequence? First, with a bit of your thoughts on housing, then transportation, then energy. These are all parts of what people who work in the field, like you and I, would call environmental policy. But from the standpoint of people who are dealing with the consequences, they all come together. Right. I mean, if I own a place or live somewhere, I've got to pay for the housing, the transportation, the energy. But that's kind of a um, they're viewed all separately by a lot of folks. But if we can go through them one by one a little bit, I think that'd be helpful. So we all are on the same page. So housing to start. Sure. So um, California's housing crisis is notorious. Um, uh, it is uh, it predates what's now, I think. Um, viewed as a broader housing crisis through the country, um, um, but it's of a, of a materially different um, uh, uh, intent and nature. It's um, uh, long been the case in California, uh, based on a 1970 law called the California Environmental Quality Act, that change, approved by government or funded by government, but change is presumptively going to cause an adverse impact to the physical environment that warrants um, avoidance. And um, that change can be as benign as um, a hammer falling on a nail during business hours on weekdays as allowed by local ordinance. That increased ambient noise from temporary construction activity is itself an adverse impact under the California Environmental Quality Act and can and has been used uh, to block even additions, renovations to single family homes. Um, in one notorious Berkeley case, um, a single family home replacement on an existing lot that was supported by all adjacent neighbors and received an unanimous approval from both the Planning Commission and the City Council was in court for 11 years, including the California Supreme Court, under a lawsuit involving the California Environmental Quality Act. This is different than any other form of law in any other state in the country. An anonymous litigant or a litigant having no interest in the environment whatsoever can sue a government and then a private applicant to block the most benign imaginable housing project. And housing is just one of the um, targets, but it's the most frequent target of uh, sequel lawsuits. And these are, of course, housing projects that comply with general plans, our comprehensive plan, and zoning, and all of the state's notoriously strict uh, environmental protection standards. Still, one person can sue. There's about 100 topics you have to cover. The win-loss rate is about 50-50. And the person who sues, if they win that coin toss, are entitled to attorney's fees, all of which is paid for by the housing applicant. That's just one example of incredibly, incredibly uh, discriminatory 
quote, environmental policies, uh, because of course it only applies to people who need housing. It doesn't apply to incumbent residents or those wealthy enough to buy into existing homes. Um, there are other examples. Um, I think most of us would be on the bus back to Georgia if we found some small town that was charging $100,000 as an entry fee to come into the town, a country club initiation fee equivalent, $100,000 for the privilege of actually buying in to the town, buying a home. But $100,000 is now about the average amount of fees that have to be paid to local government in the Sacramento area, for example, in order to build a new home. So before you buy the property or buy any of the lumber or appliances or do any of the construction activity or whatever, um, you're expected to pay the government $100,000 for the privilege of simply living in a new community. And um, uh, again, absolutely fine if you already live there um, and existing owners are much more likely to be older and wealthier and whiter. Um, pretty devastating if you happen to be younger uh, and browner and uh, frankly less uh, wealthy. Um, but home ownership is a path to middle income stability. And, uh, uh, and so by shutting down housing in particular, we're not just saying to people, you can't own a home, but we're saying to people, you can't accumulate the multi-generational wealth that your grandfather or father or you yourself have been able to accumulate to get your kids through college, to have some money for your old age, uh, to have a place to live if you suffer a job loss or an injury. Um, all of those benefits of home ownership evaporate once you start to say, oh, but any change to this neighborhood is a significant adverse impact to the physical environment. And by the way, if you wanna, if you wanna come here, I'm gonna charge $100,000 as the government for the privilege of you joining my community, which is by the way, not a country club. And all this is exacerbated by the Fed's policies right now of low interest rates over a decade, which raises asset values for those same incumbents. That's exactly right. Um, and, you know, part of this is real politic, right? I mean, uh, um, it's, it's not an unusual political circumstance for, um, you know, the incumbent um, powerful uh, to have advantages over the uh, newcomers. Um, what's remarkable in California is this incumbent political advantage is um, uh, overwhelmingly defended by white liberals who are quite wealthy with Black Lives Matter signs on their front lawn, but absolutely no black neighbors anywhere nearby. And the idea of allowing new housing, oh my goodness, it's an assault on their environment. Well, let's go to transportation and please give us a quick tour of your sense of the environmental effects on that other key issue too. Well, happy to do that. Um, one of my favorite headlines really of all time um, was from the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, which asked the question, what's white, wealthy, male, and five feet wide? And the answer is a San Francisco bike lane. <laughs> which is overwhelmingly going to be occupied by a white, male, relatively wealthy individual. And in fact, um, uh, I, I like to bike. Many people I know like to bike. Um, but most bike lanes are used much more often for uh, recreational purposes 
than as a substitute for the daily trips we all need to make, um, including, you know, not just to work, but getting kids to, to uh, school and um, taking care of doctor's appointments and um, dealing with elderly relatives, all the stuff you normally just need to do um, uh, becomes almost impossible to do uh, if you don't have a car. And, um, uh, and the car has long been targeted by the environmental movement as kind of the root of all evil um, and various efforts to ban cars or block cars or limit car use uh, have been a stalwart of the environmental movement for a long time. The trick, though, um, uh, is it turns out cars are really, really important, especially to low-income families, um, uh, in order to keep kids in school, get to work on time, go to those doctor's appointments, get healthier food uh, at lower cost in bulk. It, it, and, and, and lower income Californians, again, predominantly communities of color, um, consistently spend their first discretionary dollars getting a car. And you can get to, you know, <laughs> dozens more times of jobs in a car than trying to ride a bus. And the uh, answer in the environmental community is, well, we should just have more buses. And the answer in the nation, as well as in California, even pre-COVID, is that low-income bus ridership has plummeted. It continued to plummet uh, during the um, uh, COVID emergency. Um, there'll always be a place for buses on high-trafficked urban streets, uh, and they never, ever, ever pencil in um, uh, most of California. Um, and, uh, and they're, frankly, quite discriminatory to tell folks who can buy a car for $3,000 uh, pre-COVID that would last for another five years, um, typically a lower emitting, um, you know, 10-year-old uh, car of, um, you know, reliable vintage um, uh, that'll last pretty much forever um, uh, and serve all kinds of needs. Um, uh, and yet, you know, we're telling people to ride the bus or, or you know, or, or ride a bike. And, you know, those bikes cost a couple grand too. So it's just a, a remarkably willful uh, rejection of years and years worth of um, studies. For example, after the Clinton reforms to the welfare program, um, uh, when Gingrich was in Congress, uh, and folks were really concerned about what families uh, who no longer received welfare assistance um, would do and how they would succeed or not. And it turned out that car ownership and use was a huge indicator of a family's ability to, you know, stay in school, keep a job, advance in a job, uh, maintain housing. Um, and yet we have this war on cars, regardless of um, the fact that the people most in need of cars, often, by the way, not working, you know, in offices or in keyboard economies, but having to be physically present to be paid. Uh, and often working shifts where, you know, transit service is either non-existent or almost non-existent. Um, these tend to be people of color. And um, so an attack on cars is really an attack on lower and middle income people of color. And, and there's just a refusal um, by the environmental community now under the climate rubric, formerly under the Clean Air Act rubric, uh, to recognize that and plan for that. Um, uh, well, let's talk a little about the related issue that connects the others of energy policy. You've identified that also. 
Sure. So uh, this is this is really very very climate centric, um, and uh, while there's all kinds of um, uh, you know consensus around some science issues, um, the very foundational question of is the goal of the climate movement to continue to allow upward mobility for uh, people uh, globally and in each town in California, or is the goal to decrease the living standard of people in wealthier uh, nations uh, and somehow try to raise the living standard of poor people and somewhere meet in the middle. And the easiest example of this is um, uh, really just a horrendously uh, planned and executed uh, transformation to renewable energy, where something like um, now over a quarter of all the solar power California produces, uh, which of course is very time sensitive, happens in the afternoons, um, is lost. We can't, we can't make use of it in California. Our demand is not there. And then we don't have solar power uh, in the evening peak hour when people go home and turn on their stoves and start streaming uh, Netflix or whatever. And, um, and so we import power, uh, typically gas-fired power, natural gas-fired power from other states um, and from increasingly um, unreliable power plants in California because we've stopped building them or even letting them be um, cleaned up and modernized. And so California... California pays twice. We pay for a renewable energy grid that we can't use when we most need it. And we pay for um, a, uh, a hyper expensive and frankly dirtier than it needs to be natural gas uh, electric generation load um, when we do need the power. And then we further double down on that with um, uh, the concept that we should eliminate fossil fuel use generally in California, which is uh, at the moment, at least, um, equating to uh, the elimination of, let's call it food processing, right? We, we are a global breadbasket for agriculture. Um, we can take those tomatoes and we can make ketchup. Um, and if we do that, and we do that in a timely way, um, uh, we have to use more power than the sun. Uh, and we don't have battery technology that pencils. And so that whole industry of food processing is highly dependent on natural gas, and we'll get some more biogas and fuels like that uh, over time. But instead, we are focused on eliminating natural gas. And in fact, all kinds of local governments have adopted bans on natural gas, which apply to new buildings. And then electricity is four, five, six, seven times more expensive as natural gas. So occupants of new buildings have to pay a ton more for their own energy needs. And then God help us, the folks who work in energy intensive industries like food processing, as I just described, or manufacturing or any of the extractive industries or even cement making, those folks find their jobs absolutely at risk from this, let's just end California's uh, use of natural gas. And the complete hypocrisy here is unbelievable because it's not like we're not going to eat ketchup. We like ketchup and salsa and all kinds of other stuff. And we need cement and all kinds of other manufactured goods. But California's climate math, which is completely fraudulent and is, by the way, still in widespread use in all kinds of other countries as well, 
assumes that products made in other countries are zero greenhouse gas and then product made that same product made in California has whatever greenhouse gas is produced by the energy consumed in making that product. If you think of it, a coal-fired grid in China making plywood or cement or some other, you know, very simple commodity product available in large supply in the United States, um, uh, having a effective uh, subsidy in California's fraudulent climate math because it can produce coal-fired products with no greenhouse gas in magic math land, transport them with bunker fuel across the ocean, and then truck them to wherever they're needed in California. Uh, and that's all fine, uh, but when that same product is made in California, we have a fully burdened greenhouse gas industry, which our energy and climate leaders would like to eliminate, actually phase out. And that is a remarkably ineffective, um, from a global climate change perspective, um, strategy. The, the net ton of cement, of course, is far higher in greenhouse gas manufactured and imported um, in the way I've just described. Um, and it throws Californians out of, out of work. Um, and the Californians who are working in those industries don't tend to have fancy college degrees that allow them to sit in front of a keyboard and tap away and be paid. Um, so just an incredibly regressive and ultimately quite racist regime, which really rejects a, a quite successful history, Jim, as you know, um, under the Clean Air Act of effectively regulating to reduce pollutants that we want to get rid of uh, while maintaining um, you know, a level of both employment and uh, upward mobility um, uh, that worked pretty well in California uh, until, uh, um, until this environmental climate movement um, really sought to impose a different world order. Um, and, uh, and that different world order is Green Jim Crow. Well, let's talk a minute on a few other issues. This is such great stuff, uh, Jennifer. We have one of the themes in your piece and that you've talked about today is you might, one might characterize it as an upper middle class meritocratic mentality that tends to be pretty uniform in how things are viewed. And there's also a generational aspect, perhaps, because a lot of the sensibility may come from first wave boomers, people that came of age really before 1968, who were born say between 1944, 45 and the mid fifties. People like you and me are second wave boomers. Our viewpoint is a bit more skeptical. How do you think about those issues? Is that a fair way to examine it or would you see it differently? I think it is a fair way to examine it. Um, uh, you know, it's little known, but we have worse residential racial segregation in California communities today than we did in 1965. And just think about that for a moment. Um, we've segregated California. We've resegregated California to levels that are worse than they were before the civil rights reforms of the 1960s. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means you grow up with people in your same socioeconomic class. You go to school with people in your same socioeconomic class. You are taught by people who, by and large, are going to be the teachers that emerged from that same socioeconomic class. 
So we have a, um, a, a very echo chambery, if you will, um, uh, system in place. And it's not a system that's designed to promote mutual understanding, let alone empathy uh, for people who um, uh, start uh, uh, with less money and, uh, and really have no, at this moment at least, uh, uh, expectation, reasonable expectation of ever having enough money to live, uh, you know, with um, the winners of uh, last century's meritocracy. And, um, and one might add, that, by the way, to that, Jennifer, I mean, I'm struck, I'd be interested in your reaction. So many people who have this so-called meritocratic view, and that's not just people, you might say, at the top of the so-called meritocracy, it, it spreads further, it's an ethos. But so many people who have done well under that seem to think they've done it all themselves, to be blunt, and don't seem to have a sense of greater community obligation that even prior elites, if you want to call them that, and they always get turned over and they get corrupted and tossed out, but at least some of them tried to have a broader service ethic. Yes. Um, well, you know, once you uh, take a concept, a pretty abstract concept in some ways, with respect to what does it mean for me today, and, and I would argue climate is that broader abstract concept, then you can have an elite that still feels they're, you know, they're doing good work for the world, because it's the world, not anymore my neighbors, because I don't know any neighbors, and all my neighbors are doing pretty, pretty well here in California. And hey, if you don't like it, you can leave. And you know, if people leave, excellent, because we think we have too many people on earth anyway. So once you, you know, by, by all means, take off. And so once you have this capacity that we are, and this is an unfortunate phrase, but it's one that gets used in Berkeley too often, that our continued existence is the rape of Mother Gaia. Once you actually uh, believe that to be true, then your willingness from a position of privilege that you don't even recognize as privilege because you're not even seeing, let alone talking to, people not from your world of privilege. They don't go to the same churches or stores or schools or neighborhood parks. They're just invisible. And yet you, privileged resident of Berkeley, can do all kinds of stuff that hurts them, who you don't know, in order to save Mother Gaia. And that is a very, very dangerous, in my judgment, very religious and not uh, susceptible to kind of normal civic discourse or dialogue or consensus building um, uh, attitude. And, uh, and, and that unfortunately is uh, simply too prevalent um, uh, so, right in California. So Jennifer Hernandez, you have been involved in this in every aspect. And, and I'd rather focus for a minute, not so much on some of the solutions as important as they are, uh, but the deeper question, what does one do to change this broken dialogue? It seems like environmental politics is basically stagnant and it is unable to work in traditional democratic processes for perhaps a generation now, since the early 1990s. 
And so a lot of the environmental uh, works that are done, the regulations, they're done separately. They're incoherent as a whole. They don't go through democratic accountability. A lot of the folks who are in positions of, of power or influence uh, have the views that you've identified. So what do we do about it? Yeah, so I think the, um, uh, there's a few different approaches. Um, one, the, the folks that I would term, and Jim, I mean this with affection, uh, environmental regulatory nerds, and I put you in that category, <laughs> um, need to remind people how successful this pattern of uh, reducing pollution and protecting the environment has in fact really worked, how successful it's been uh, over the past years. And, and, and stop already with the doom and gloom um, that, you know, unless we end capitalism, which is not a hyperbolic statement, um, uh, you know, we can't solve global warming. Uh, and, and that's, you know, it, it starts with, wait a minute, in the, you know, in the 1940s, we already had air in Southern California that was so bad, people thought it was a gas attack from the Japanese during the war. <laughs> and it, was, it took us a little while to figure out, actually, no, with this weird thing that happens in sky with heat and, and particulates from combustion and and, and my goodness, who knew? And certainly who knew that a bunch of weird rare earth minerals could be assembled into something called a catalytic converter. And now this region is in attainment of the goals that we originally sent under the Clean Air Act. When there, were, there was talk about having to depopulate Los Angeles, get rid of cars, uh, once we figured out it wasn't the Japanese and the gas attack. So we have to be a little more humble, I think, about what we don't know. Um, but also about the importance of continuing to respect all laws, including civil rights laws, in weighing what the appropriate environmental solutions could be. You know, in, in, during the drought, which California has quite regularly, uh, uh, families are asked to reduce water consumption. Without question, our household could have most easily reduced water consumption by exporting our teenage son. <laughs> that would have done it in a heartbeat. But that's a ridiculous concept. And no one really thought about it or suggested it. But when you think about California climate policy and the idea that a sheet of plywood or a ton of cement imported from a dirtier coal-based grid has zero GHG, that's just a laughably, absolutely absurd metric. So let's just, you know, let's hold the climate accountability, uh, 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 you know, rally and call for honest math. Let's start with that. And let's go back to a little bit of cost benefit ranking. What are we going to get? Right now, every forest fire season, we're emitting the equivalent of nearly 10 million cars of pollution, of greenhouse gas into the air. And we're also, by the way, strangling people from smoke inhalation and killing people in fires. Is there a more urgent public health crisis than getting a handle on fires in California uh, other than COVID, of course? And, and so, okay, fine. We know we need to do things differently. We, we, we forested, uh, we, you know, we cut timber for years and then we just stopped. 
and we didn't do anything really to manage forests. And now we got to get rid of a lot of dead and dying trees. And yet we can't get our act together to allow those trees to be turned into pellets and burned for power, which in Europe counts as a zero greenhouse gas renewable technology, but in California is considered a dirty technology. And that's just a matter of the prejudice and bias of those in environmental leadership positions on climate who find the idea of burning a tree, even a dead tree, that's otherwise going to explode and cause far more pollution and even death. But burning that tree or cutting it down, even if it's dead, is a nightmare, just a horror, a values-based horror. And that may be true, but that is not environmental stewardship. It's not environmental leadership. And it certainly is counterproductive from a climate perspective. Um, we, we, we simply can't keep pandering to the lowest common denominator in the environmental worlds that simply say we have to stop raping Mother Gaia. There are too many of us and making most of us miserable while leaving those wealthy enough to have home generators and solar walls of, uh, of uh, batteries um, you know, with the lights on and everybody else can just go to bed at 8 p.m. when it gets dark. Well, Jennifer Hernandez, you have been a leader in this field uh, for 30 years, a very important 30 years, and you've worked in all manner of ways from private law practice directly connected to business to government appointments and NGOs. How are you going to dedicate your many skills in the next phase of your own career? That's not meant to, to pry, but to give all of us some ideas and inspiration to how to act on these things. Well, thanks, Jim. That's a really um, good question. I have passed the point of um, uh, of feeling like it's appropriate to simply uh, do what I originally did, which was break barriers, especially in big law firms. Um, I believe I was the first uh, Latina partner in a big law firm uh, back in the day, uh, and now um, you know continue to. Um, uh, practice in realms that uh, uh, make me frequently the only Democrat, let alone the only um, uh, female or, uh, or a person of color in a room. Um, and it's very important to have diversity in the private sector. And I'm, I'm grateful to all those who have uh, welcomed me into that world. But I have a level of nerd-based knowledge, uh, as do you, um, uh, that is lost to uh, 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 kind of the dogmatists. Um, and unfortunately, and I, 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 now that you're in the media, Jim, I hate to sort of uh, raise this, but there's a couple of biases in the media that are really also quite harmful. So um, stories about communities of color too often still involve crime or social welfare programs uh, uh, like affordable housing uh, uh, that ignore the plight of most working families, which is they can't afford to live here. And, and why that isn't given more attention by, by the media is, um, is, is in my humble judgment, um, uh, the result of a long-term bias um, uh, to ignore working families. Well, and a quick and, pause uh, there, Jennifer, isn't it, doesn't that relate directly to your prior point about the homogeneity, even if there's some more ethnic and racial and gender diversity, but among the so-called meritocratic 
uh, stripe of people, that seems to be very dominant also and generationally dominant in our whole uh, social media and media landscape too. Oh, I would totally agree. Uh, uh, and again, in the Black Lives Matter heyday, um, uh, you know, every environmental group uh, and for that matter, media group was desperately seeking communities of color to serve on boards or in leadership positions, provided, of course, they had the identical views yes. of those already in those positions. They wanted a, a color hue diversity, but they certainly weren't looking for a um, diversity of perspective or direction. Um, and then there's a final sort of just note here, which is, uh, you know, at least when I talk to media, I've had very, very smart people say, you know, gosh, I wish you were in academia because then <laughs> I could quote you. And um, and the answer is, uh, you know, sorry, guys, but not all of us had the opportunity uh, uh, to, to make very little money and kind of scrabble um, uh, for a lifetime, especially in the 80s when having even a woman professor was quite unique. Um, uh, and and the, tr and the truth is, those of us in the private sector actually do tend to know stuff that we know and not dabble in stuff that we don't know. I yes. shouldn't be doing a death penalty trial. I should be able to translate what I've worked for for 37 years in the environmental and land use arena. I should be able to translate those issues into terms that are understandable and relevant to today's decision makers and advocate, advocate in my world for the civil rights laws that seem to have been parked. Even the use of civil rights instead of the term environmental justice is now resisted by the California legislature. On so what basis? Civil um, rights, why is that? It's uh, because civil rights implies a level of upward mobility and equal access to opportunity that environmental justice does not. And our values now are environmental justice, which is of course protecting people from disparate levels of pollution or, or industrial risk, um, uh, for example. So, uh, but civil rights is upward mobility. It's equal access to opportunity. It threatens the meritocratic elite and their conclusion that we have raped Mother Gaia and we all need to just live poorer, led, of course, by those with not enough money to begin with. Well, let's do a lightning round. So if we could summarize, what is next for you? What's your next career phase? What do we look for? And when people hear this and they think, you know, I'd like to help Jennifer Hernandez, what she's up to, what should they be thinking about? Well, I do think that uh, in particular, uh, there has been an absence of education and opportunity for free discourse among uh, elected representatives of, uh, uh, of middle class uh, and uh, lower income communities on these issues. For far too long, uh, this whole topic has been relegated to uh, kind of the, you know, you, you follow the name on the T-shirt and do whatever they say. Uh, and that's just ridiculous. So I would very much appreciate any uh, opportunity uh, that anyone can uh, invent or support or uh, uh, otherwise uh, manage to put together uh, uh, for just an open dialogue uh, with elected representatives, especially from the Latino, Black, and API communities uh, in California or otherwise, uh, about the success 
the co-success opportunities of civil rights law and environmental law. We end up with much better environmental outcomes in wealthier societies that have political stability and greater levels of equality, even issues like you know, uh, educating women have been helpful for the environment, forcing people uh, onto the bus or pretending that a mom with two kids and a grandmother who needs to go to the doctor can do so on a bike. Those are nonsensical. And yes. everyone just needs to chill out and start talking about real life again. And that means having an honest conversation about what do we do about climate? Not climate denial, but what do we do about it? Do we follow the tried and true civil rights coexisted with the Clean Air Act for 20 years? Or do we say, climate, capitalism has to end, we can't afford democracy, and everyone needs to just start sacrificing, starting with you over there. And the people who say that tend to always, or inevitably, assume that they'll be in charge, which mystifies me, but I guess that's another show we could do sometime. Uh, let's well, look you know at what, Jim? Maybe, yes. maybe this will be the end, but it's like, you know, when we all read kids about, when we were kids and we were reading children's books about princesses and princes, we assumed we were the prince and princess. We yes. never assumed we were the hidden serf uh, supporting uh, the monarchy. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and that is a repeated error of intellectuals uh, as they get uh, excited about being in charge uh, uh, support those who then take charge in an autocratic way and then are killed by yes. those who have taken charge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, let's go back in time quickly and personally. Let's look at Jennifer Hernandez's incredibly accomplished life story. If you could do so today, what would you sit down and tell the 20-year-old Jennifer Hernandez? I would say you should continue with a serious level of mistrust for those who are telling you what you need to do or what you can't do. Um, I can't even, you know, in fifth grade, I was told I could maybe aspire to be a teacher, secretary, or nurse, but otherwise being a mom would be great. And if I had taken that advice to heart, as so many of my classmates had done, I wouldn't have had the life I've had. And I don't know what the equivalent is that people are being told today, but so many students I talk to uh, want to be a researcher or an academic or work in an NGO. And, and those are not really going to be much help to those who are trying to put food on the table for their kids. Um, I, I do think we, we owe it to each other to be a little more compassionate, a little bit more informed, and a little more pragmatic and practical about uh, uh, dedicating your life to um, uh, improvement of uh, the human condition here in California and elsewhere, uh, rather than the study of it. Are there significant matters relating to environment, energy, or related issues that you've worked in about which you've changed your mind over time? Yeah, so one of the kind of uh, uh, one, I got very, very activated on this issue in 2008 uh, when, and when I say this issue, I mean housing, uh, when we all proclaimed that high-density uh, apartments uh, along major bus routes 
uh, is the right place to put housing and the right place uh, to um, change the urban fabric. And I believe that. And uh, uh, got a rude awakening um, when uh, uh, former friends, at least, uh, who were leading an environmental labor uh, uh, cabal uh, uh, demanded uh, that none of that activity actually occur in 2008-9 when um, many carpenters and other tradesmen that are in my family or that I knew and grew up with uh, were facing bankruptcy with the very, very steep um, uh, economic devastation caused by the Great Recession. And so it's like, well, Silicon Valley is at least booming still. Let's build that housing where we said we would. And uh, I got completely stuffed by those who said, nope, we got to do the California Environmental Quality Act. We got to do project labor agreements. It's going to be four, five, six years of telling people like me uh, uh, what to do and paying people like me by the hour um, instead of paying people who uh, would actually build that housing. That was a shocking, shocking development. And since then, I've come to question the very foundation of that concept. It turns out rentals are a terrible idea for life. It really is important to um, uh, to get into home ownership yes. uh, for family stability and welfare. I didn't I didn't appreciate that. Uh, it turns out that high density housing is the most expensive housing we know how to build. Think about the complexities of steel frames and elevators and redundant life safety systems. It's very cheap to build two or three story wood framed homes or apartments or duplexes. And those are frankly a lot more affordable to people who need housing than $4,000 a month studio rentals. Um, so that's, uh, that's an example. And it's a really good example. As my dad used to say, probably too often for my taste at the time, but it was a pretty good lesson is Jennifer, for being so smart, you sure can be stupid sometimes. <laughs> and he was right. And you gotta keep learning. We could all benefit from that. And we will link your fine article in the show notes. Uh, but you have a very good discussion on that question about rental versus ownership that I think will open a lot of eyes, certainly open mine. As we close, Claire Booth Luce in the 20th century instructed John Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? Jim, that's really hard. Um, you know, my uh, husband um, uh, got me a license plate holder, uh, which is just, she persisted. Mm. And I guess um, uh, a, a two-word version of that sentence uh, uh, is, uh, is she persisted. I'm going to keep trying. Very good and very fitting, and everyone owes you a lot for your service to the state. And with that, Jennifer Hernandez, thank you. It's been a delight to speak with you today, and thank you for your service in advancing California's environmental and energy leadership in this hinge moment. Thank you, Jim. Keep up the good work. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send ideas for future guests and topics, and follow us on Twitter at James Strott. Connect via our website, servetolead.com, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station.
to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.